So when Jordan asked me to preach today and gave me these passages in the gospel, I know why he doesn't want to preach today. Like the time that I was asked to um, come and preach uh, at a church in Illinois because they didn't have a pastor. And they said, we're going through the Ten Commandments. And, um, well, the topic is adultery for you to preach at. The first time I'd never seen these people, and they asked me to preach that. So. Well, in our gospel lesson this morning, you, you heard Jesus repeat uh, the old words and then keep saying, but I say to you. And this was typical of Jewish rabbi. Jewish rabbis would uh, try to establish the fuller meaning of the text. And so what Jesus is doing is he's fulfilling, he's deepening, he's amplifying these ancient commandments, uh, the Big Ten. He's not contradicting them, but he's enlarging them. And he will assure us that it's now possible to live as the commandments say, as church. Now, we'll be looking uh, more specifically uh, at these specific sections of the Sermon on the Mount during the Sundays of Pentecost season, but um, I want to make a few observations about these passages this morning so that we'll see that there's a common theme that runs through these. I mean, first, uh, Jesus deals with, with anger. He isn't just talking about anger in these initial verses. He's really talking about being angry about being resentful, having an attitude that we kind of carry around. Um, it's, um, it's, it's being an angry person. It's holding a grudge. And he gets pretty specific, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus says uh, that this anger expresses itself in words that mock a person's intelligence or mock their moral character. It's calling people stupid or idiot or airhead or jerk, or rat, or moron. And in his judgment, these are not harmless words. They're extremely serious sins to be gotten rid of at all costs. Jesus says this kind of anger that expresses itself with this kind of language involves hell-deserving sins. Be good if some of our politicians heard this. Why would God make such a big deal about this? It's because God is at war with everything that is the opposite of love, of bitterness, of hatred, of hateful language and behavior. I mean, Jesus is going beyond the commandments that protect life. Jesus intends to protect persons, their dignity, their character as human beings made in the image of God for whom Jesus died. And so as the community of Jesus, it, it makes sense that he claimed that the world will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. Not by our t-shirts, not by our bumper stickers, not by our jewelry, but by the love that we have for one another. As Dale Bruner puts it, getting along and forgiving each other are missionary facts. I love that. Well, resentment and disparaging words will demonstrate that we are not God's people. And then he, he, he illustrates his point with worship. In the Judaism of Jesus' days, um, a person's sins were not forgiven 
even by bringing sacrifices to the altar, even on the Day of Atonement, unless you had first reconciled with another person if that person had something against you. And so Jesus is working on this uh, theme. And, and we actually do this in our, in our worship, don't we? We live this out when we pass the peace in our liturgy. When we do it before Eucharist, it's a practice that goes way back in the church's liturgy. And I love what uh, a former professor at Fuller Seminary wrote about this, Bill Durness. He said, in some congregations, this passing of the peace, it's a missed opportunity. People instead say, good morning. The missed opportunity is this. When we look at one another and say, the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, we are extending to one another the reality that having been reconciled to God, we're also reconciled to one another. The act suggests that we do more than simply forget their slights and trespasses against us. We actually reach out to them in love and communion. I'm often struck by the fact that though I often do not feel like greeting people, and you may not feel that way this morning, but the very act of doing so reminds me of my relationship to them and of our mutual responsibilities. And carrying out this act frequently brings with it feelings of love and unity. Here, we model God's action in which God reaches out and embraces us in Christ and calls us to the ministry of reconciliation. We embrace each other, he says, on behalf of God. Wow, that's powerful. We pass the peace before we come to the altar. And then Jesus illustrates this business about anger again with the, the idea of litigation that needs to be settled before reconciliation. And the key word here is quickly. If forgiveness and reconciliation are needed, don't waste a second. Do it now. Once when I was uh, preaching a sermon at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in, in Newport Beach, I was preaching it on the Good Samaritan and how Jews and Samaritans, Jesus was illustrating, uh, need to um, find some sort of reconciliation in a sense in that parable. And there was a man that came up to me after the service at the door and he said he had been at war with his son for years and now he needed to do something right away. He needed to reconcile with his son. A couple years later, when I was preaching there again at that church, he came up after the service and he said, you remember me? Yeah. And he said, you remember what I told you? I just wanted you to know that my son and, now, and I now have a restored relationship and everything is really good. And you will know that you are my disciples by the love that we have for one another. And then Jesus turned his attention to the commandment against adultery. But he got more specific about adultery in the inner life, what we call lust. And when you think about it, lust is like anger in that it seeks to have power over another person. We can put others down with anger or we can put others down with desire because we're so focused on ourselves, our rage or our lust, regardless of, of what it does to that other person. When I thought about that in preparation for the sermon, I remembered something um, that Trevecca shared with me a few weeks ago from a visitor that we, a person we know that was visiting HTC. 
And that friend had made the comment that she observed that no one at HTC is on an ego trip, a power trip. Congratulations, that's good news. And they will all know that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. Well, back to Jesus' specific point about lust, there are a lot of translations simply have it that we commit adultery if we are looking with lust. But the translation should be looking at a woman in order to lust after her. Our, um, our translation that we use in worship is not bad here because it reads, look with lustful intent. In other words, Jesus isn't condemning it looking at an attractive person He's not speaking of the natural, normal desire that is part of human instinct and, and human nature. What he condemns is a specific purpose of the looking. Looking at another with the deliberate intention of lusting after that person or deliberately using the eyes to stimulate ourselves, to stimulate that desire. Jesus is condemning sustained, willful looking that makes the other person not a person, but a thing an object to be used for one's self-gratification. Again, the ego trip. It's like anger in that both are condemned if we will it to continue, to sustain that feeling, that being angry, or that intending to lust. The lustful stare, it goes beyond the desiring look. It's just like when envy um, goes beyond emulation or adoration. And Jesus gets pretty specific here too. In fact, here he engages in some hyperbole, right? He talks about cutting out eyes and hands, which is meant to tell us once again, yeah, I know. Okay, I got to tell you a, a quick story in the process here. I was giving the, uh, the um, what do you call that, the address, uh, the baccalaureate address at a school that I was teaching at and chaplain at in North Dakota. And I got to a point where I said, if someone has not said that to you in your four years here at Jamestown College, then we have failed. And I paused, you know, for, for emphasis. And just at that point, a little kid in the back had dropped his coins on the floor and cried out, uh-oh. <laughs> So thank you. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. So good. Well, just to say it softly, eyes and hands. Jesus is meant, what he means again is, look, um, just like he said with anger, do this quickly. That's the key word here again. Although here he's using the metaphor of amputation, not just putting a little wound dressing on there. You've got to do this right away and substantially. I love the way Del Bruner puts it. Jesus says it's infinitely better to go limping into heaven than to go leaping into hell. That's good advice, especially since the comp compensation for our obedience in this case is amazing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You see, Jesus was a realist, though. He knows that we'll probably never be completely free of either anger or lust. We're embodied beings. People get in our way or we want to possess them. But Jesus is offering us membership in a community 
in which our bodies can be formed to serve God and, to, and one another so that we can live a life free from the domination of anger and lust. Willpower is not enough, but by the immersion of baptism into Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and into a community of the baptized, we're empowered to live a life that characterizes the community of Jesus. And by our love for one another, they will know that we are his disciples. Well, when it comes to Jesus' words about divorce, he knew that Jewish law referred only to the wife's misbehavior. And we also know that he didn't go along with that because he just spoke about the man's lust. Even more to the point, though, Jesus sees through the sexist strategies of the times in which males abused the concessions that Moses gave for divorce. Instead of appealing to Deuteronomy 24 and all the rabbinic uh, interpretations, Jesus goes back to Genesis. He goes back to God's original intention for marriage that granted equal dignity of the man and the woman in a lifelong relationship. In Judaism at that time, the required bill of divorce that was handed in the presence of two witnesses was a little bit more civil than what the surrounding pagan society was up to. But it's still, the woman in the eyes of the law was a thing. She was at the absolute disposal of her husband or her father. Essentially, she had no legal rights. In fact, she could not divorce her husband for any reason, while a man could divorce his wife for any cause at all. What Jesus was doing was placing himself on the side of the legally weaker party, in this case, women. And as in the case of lust, Jesus was condemning using another person for self-centered purposes. But by love for one another, all will know that these married people are disciples of Jesus. And then finally we get to Jesus' insistence that we're not to take an oath. Now there's a lot here that requires a lot of discussion and we don't have time for that. And um, if you took him really seriously, you might get in trouble if you're ever asked to witness a court case. So there's a lot to, to, work, to work through here. But the larger purpose of this command of Jesus is to protect the speech of the community, just as he sought to protect sex from being mis misused. The trustworthiness of what we say is as important to a community's welfare as the trustworthiness of our disposition and our morals. Jesus wants us to communicate honestly. He wants us to do it simply. He wants us to do it transparently. Well, these words about anger and lust and divorce and speech in fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount were addressed not to individuals, but to the community of Jesus. So what we've been talking about is not a list of requirements for the community. What we've been talking about is a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. And this is what Jordan talked about last week when he spoke about us as church being salt and light. Teachings, um, Jesus' teachings, you see, are describing a way of life of a people of a new age. 
that results from following him. And as Jordan preached about our existence as salt and light, I remembered a lesson that I learned in junior high science class. The only way light can be seen is by reflecting off of something. You can't see light in a vacuum. Christ's light is to be bouncing off of us. We as church reflect Christ's life. In other words, by living as a community that reflects Christ's life, simply by living as an alternative society in, a, in the midst of a, the darkness of a society that grabs and takes and uses people and fails to speak truth, we expose the sinful behavior that Jesus has mentioned just by living it out, this way of Jesus. We're called from the darkness that we were once living in, from the world of self-focused taking and exploiting to constitute a community capable of self-giving imitation of Christ who gave himself for us. A community that lives as a preview of a coming attraction when the kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness. So we're an alternative culture. By the way, not just a counterculture, because a counterculture always lets that other culture set the agenda, always being against something. We're an alternative culture. A church that exposes the darkness of the world, of its anger and its lust and its refusal to be committed people of the truth. And we do this simply by being this alternative community, by living it out, simply by being church. And as the exposed world looks on, they will know that we are Jesus' disciples by the love that we have for one another. In their book on the Ten Commandments, Stanley Harwas and Will Williman relate the encounter that one of them had with a young man at a conference on evangelism in the Episcopal Church. And after his speech, he and this young person walked around the lake as the conference goer said this to the speaker, I don't think we Episcopalians are going to be very evangelistic. It's just not in our nature to be too pushy. We keep our religion to ourselves. And then he related the story about a young woman that he met in California. They were on their first date, and, and all was going very well. And, and then at the end of the evening, she said, Well, do you want to go to your place or mine? I've got a big day tomorrow. What are you talking about, he asked. You know, she said, don't you find me attractive? Of course, he said, but this is our first date. I hardly know you. We can't sleep together. But I always sleep with guys on the first date, she replied. I don't do that, he said. But why don't you, she asked. Because I'm an Episcopalian. <laughs> We're funny about who we sleep with. <laughs> Episcopalian? What's that, she asked. Well, it's a kind of Christian, he replied. And then he told her about his church, and, and she was fascinated because she had never heard of such a thing. So he invited her to visit the church with him next Sunday. She did, and the young man told the conference speaker she thought it was the greatest thing she ever saw. Three weeks later, she asked our priest to baptize her. She now thinks she invented the Episcopal Church, even though we're not dating anymore. <laughs> and this all led Harawas and Williman to the conclusion that these days, just one person running loose in Southern California who keeps the Sixth Commandment is enough to attract a crowd. Call it ordinary folk like us getting to be saints. 
Imagine if it's not just one person running loose in Costa Mesa, but a whole church load of folks, a whole church load of folks imitating Jesus in self-giving, self-abandoning love that exposes the darkness of the behavior of a world that takes, while at the same time, it invites, we invite others into the light that Christ offers. In a while, we'll take postures of confession and we'll join in a prayer that is in first person plural. We, as church, will confess to God that we as church have not consistently lived as the salt and light that Jesus made us this past week, that we haven't quite lived up to the description of our life together that Jesus has enabled. And we will continue that prayer, confessing our assurance of his forgiveness and his restoration so that we can go back out into a culture that seeks power over others and fails at truth-telling to show the world there's another way to live as community. And then, after we have confessed our corporate failing and we have passed the peace with one another, we come forward to the table this morning and we'll be reminded as we stretch out our palms that we are one with others in this community of Jesus, not as takers or exploiters, but as those who receive grace in an attitude of thanksgiving. And as Christ gives himself to us this morning in the signs of his broken body and his shed blood, we're empowered to go forth into the world reflecting the light of that self-giving love, exposing and calling the world back from its dehumanizing attitudes and actions to the one who wants to make us just human again. And the world will know that we as church are the disciples of Jesus by the love that we have for one another. To him be the glory in Christ and in the church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.